Welcome to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We want to be a place where you can own your faith and take next steps in your relationship with Jesus. Maybe your next step is to seek out community and join a movement group. Maybe it means supporting movement financially for the first time or using your gifts on a volunteer team. Whatever God is calling you to do, our prayer is that you will step out in faith and let him lead you. For more information about your next step, please visit movementcolumbus.com. Happy Father's Day. I too got a little bit emotional when I watched that video because fatherhood is an interesting journey, you know? Some of us are biological fathers, but some of us aren't. But when we enter into the family of God, the Bible says that we have spiritual fathers. And we have a heavenly father that loves us like you wouldn't believe. And Don said we're going to be kind of hopping into some heavy stuff today, but I want you to see at the end how much our heavenly father loves us with everything that he has. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18. The Bible's underneath your seat. That's on page 275, and we're in our week five of learning how to walk. This is a series where we're saying walking is this metaphor for faith in the Bible, that we were designed to walk with God. Also, if you don't have a Bible, that is our gift to you. Um, But before we get to our passage today, I want to place ourselves yet again in the story of God. It's really important. It might sound repetitive, but we have to know where we've been to know where we're going. So God creates the world. God is our heavenly father, and he invites us into his story. And the original intent for God's people is that we would dwell with God's people in God's place, in God's perfect presence. That was the Garden of Eden. They walked with God in perfect unity. But, of course, we don't walk the way that God calls us to walk. We walk to the beat of our own drum. We walk our own path. And now God's blessing becomes a curse. Our benefit becomes a burden. And we exchange paradise for the prison of our own sin. But God loves us so much, so much, that he uses the rest of the Bible to show us this rescue plan that he embarks on. And he invites us in And so for week one, we talked about Abraham. He becomes this lone flicker of light shining in a dark world. And God says, through you, I'm going to create this great nation that's going to be a beacon of hope to the world, a beacon of light in the midst of all of this sin. And in week two, we talked about how this nation is birthed as they leave Exodus. This family now becomes a full nation and God blesses them and he gives these wedding vows to them. They call them the Ten Commandments. And God says, this is my law. This is how you are to reflect me. And the fundamental idea of the entire law is God saying, I just want you to be like me. I just want you to be like me again. You are to be holy. You are to be set apart. And holiness at its core is just being like God, blameless, sinless, perfect, And this call to be holy begins with the first commandment. You are to have no other gods before me. I'm to be your only father. You will have no other master than me. 
And that's our starting point today, because if Israel would just obey the simple commandment, all would go well with them. God promises blessing for them, but he also promises that if they don't obey him, if they don't put him first in their lives, that things will go awry. And last week, we're in the Psalms. We're in the Psalms of David. David was arguably... At least the Bible says the best king that Israel ever had. And today we're going to be looking at the worst king. Yay! Right? So this is a few hundred years after King David's reign. And now the, the nation of Israel has split. You've got northern Israel and you've got southern Judah. And they have two different kings that reign at the same time simultaneously. And during this divided monarchy period, you have 20 kings in the south in Judah and 19 kings in the north, Israel. And Judah, Judah out of those 20 kings, eight of them are good in the eyes of the Lord. That is an utter failure. That is less than 50%. But you'd think Judah was world-class compared to Israel because out of their 19, they went over. They batted triple zeros. They got none of it right. All of them were wicked. And this is the state of God's people. Not only are they divided, but their kings and their leadership have led them into moral oblivion. And the reason that most of them are wicked is because they've led their people to worship foreign gods. And our message is simple this morning, that foreign gods, not this morning, I say that every week, but most of them are wicked uh, because they follow these foreign gods. And these foreign gods in this passage, we'll see, do three things. They bring chaos into your world. They make you sacrifice everything and give you nothing in return. And they rob God of the worship that truly belongs to him. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, 275 is where chapter 18 starts, but I want you to look at chapter 16. It's on the page right next to it, verses 29. It says this, Ahab, that's the king, son of Omri, began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria 22 years, but Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. (laughs) And here's the disclaimer, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbal of the Sidonians, and he began to bow down in worship of Baal. First, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria, and then he set up an Asherah pole. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. All right, we're going to go, the next place we're going to be is chapter 18, verse 15. But before we get there, I want you to see the chaos that false gods bring into the world. So here's northern Israel. They're 0 for 19. Not only are they 0 for 19, but here's Ahab. He's the worst king of all of those 19 kings. And it starts with who he marries. He marries this woman named Jezebel. Jezebel is a Phoenician princess. And not only is she a Phoenician princess, but she's a priestess for the lowercase g gods of Baal and Asherah. And here comes some R-rated stuff. We got to buckle in. Because the worship of Baal was not only sexually like you wouldn't believe, but it also began with child sacrifice by fire. 
And Baal simply just means Lord or master. And in the ancient world, you had a Baal if you worship foreign gods or you were in a pagan worship cult. You had a Baal for everything. You had a Baal for sex. You had a Baal for success. You had a Baal for food. You had a Baal for drink. You had a Baal for prosperity. And the Baal that we're talking about is the chief Baal, and that was the Baal of rain. And he's called the Lord of life. And now Asherah, Asherah is a part of this because Asherah was Baal's mistress. She was the goddess of fertility. And when you read about these Asherah poles in the Old Testament, you guys have probably, if you've read the Bible, you've seen Asherah poles. What is that? It was these giant, and now I'm going to use not appropriate term, it was these giant penis symbols that they would erect everywhere. And that was a part of their worship. And so chapter 18, verse 1, says that there's been three years of drought in the land. No rain for three years. And King Ahab is upset. He's desperate. They need rain. We talked about that last week. Water in this part of the world is precious, and they don't have any rain. But Ahab and Jezebel have spent the last year hunting down every single prophet of the one true God, Yahweh, save one that we know of, Elijah. And Ahab wants him. He wants him dead. And so by the time that we get to verse 15 of the chapter that we're in today, Elijah, as far as we know, is the lone prophet of God in the entire world. Now, what is a prophet? Simply put, a prophet in the Old Testament was the mouthpiece of God. They spoke the words of God to the people of God. So as God's mouthpiece, Elijah has had enough that he's had enough of looking at how unholy Israel has become. And he says, I'm going to stand before King Ahab today. And his friend Obadiah says, dude, don't do that. Don't do that. He's going to kill you. And Elijah said, this is enough. And why have we had enough? Why has Elijah had enough? Well, there's been a drought and this drought is all consuming. And to the pagan worship worshipers, Baal, uh, the rain, it's, buckle in, the rain was Baal's sperm. And Asherah, because she was the goddess of fertility, the earth was her womb. And so you had these big temples, like we read in verse or chapter 16, that they would erect to the god of Baal and the goddess of Asherah, and they would have temple priests and priestesses. And these temple priests and priestesses were essentially prostitutes because the way that they thought that you got the gods to do what you wanted was to mimic what you wanted them to do. So to get the god to reign, you can fill in the blank. And this sexual perversion would just be rampant. And then when times got desperate, you sacrifice your own child by fire every time. Think about the sexual immorality that's going on in Israel right now. God's people. Think about the infanticide that's going on in Israel. God's people. It's probably not that hard for you to think about it. Because here's the rub. The Israelites, they're past dabbling in this. They have full-blown mixed their worship of God, the Father, Yahweh, with these foreign gods. And this is the context of the story that we're about to jump into. I mean, this stuff is intense. And I want you to think about just how normalized sexual perversion is in our culture today. It's celebrated. And I'm not talking about one group of people. I'm talking about the full spectrum Gay people, straight people, it doesn't matter. 
The sexual perversion in our world is rampant. And this is a tender subject, and there's more nuance that this needs to be talked about, but we also have a problem of sacrificing our children to the goddess of comfort and ease and the Baal of personal autonomy and freedom. We live in this world, guys. And I just want that to sink in because I know as Christians, when we turn on the news, it can just be so depressing at times and we could go, where God, where could you possibly be? But I want you to see, and what we will see is God sees this and God's going to do something about it. Most importantly, I want you to see the first thing that God worshiping false gods brings chaos into your world. This is a chaotic world. And so we're left wondering what's going to happen. Okay, we finally made it to the text. See, we had to do a little bit of legwork there. Uh, Verse 15, let's jump in. But Elijah said, I swear by the Lord Almighty in whose presence I stand that I will present myself to Ahab this very day. So Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come and Ahab went out to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw him, he explained, so it's really you, you troublemaker of Israel. I've made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who are supported by Jezebel. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets of Mount Carmel, and then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer? How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. We're going to pause there. So here's Elijah. Just imagine this. I got to, I had the privilege of standing on Mount Carmel in Israel, which speaking of spiritual fathers, let me, here's a disclaimer. All of this stuff that we're getting in this series is from my trip to Israel. So like, and I owe all of this learning to my pastor named Rod that led us through that trip. But anyway, uh, there is no copyright in the kingdom. He was my uh, spiritual father in that way. Anyway, I stood on Mount Carmel, and I want you to imagine there's 850 prophets on one side, and there's this one dude, just one guy on the other side. And he stands in front of all of his people, and he says, you've been bouncing back and forth. You've been worshiping. Baal, but you're also worshiping the Lord. You can't have it both ways. You got to choose one. And this is the next thing about false gods. They rob God of the worship that belongs to him. And what is Elijah saying to the people? See, these people, they haven't stopped reading their Bibles. They haven't stopped going to church. They haven't stopped going to a movement group. They haven't stopped maybe giving a little bit of money to church. But they're not just worshiping God, they're also worshiping the foreign gods. And that just wrecked me this week. Elijah says, if the Lord is God, follow him. And I think about the dancing and the hobbling back and forth in my own heart when it comes to my relationship with the Lord. Like we all do this, right? A lot of times our problems as Christians isn't that we don't worship God, it's that we have these other gods that have carved a piece out of our heart for themselves and they share it with God. And God says, I want it all. 
And the people know this, which is why it says they went completely silent. So let me ask you, you may love God, but what are those bales in your life? Maybe it's not as gross as what we're talking about, but what are those things that are creeping into your heart that tell you that this is what's going to make you meaning? This is going to give you meaning in life. This is going to give you an identity in life. What are those things where you go, Jesus, I want you, but I only want you to give 60, 65% of my life. I want you want to, you can have 70 maybe on a good day. But at 30%, that's reserved for these other things. Let's keep reading. Verse 22, then Elijah said to them, I am only the prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they want and cut it to pieces and lay it on the wood of the altar, but without setting fire to it. So I'll prepare the other bull, lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then the Lord on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the one true God, and all the people agreed. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it and call for the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls, placed it on the altar, and then they called out to the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, Baal, answer us. But there was no reply, silence of any kind, and they danced hobbling around the altar that they had made. About noontime, Elijah began to mock them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming or relieving himself, or maybe he's away on a trip or asleep and needs to be wakened. So they, the prophets of Baal, shouted louder, and following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response. Pause again. Here's this picture. Elijah says we're going to set up two altars, and the God whose fire comes down, that's the one that we're going to worship. And he gives these guys home court advantage. Not only is there 450 of them, but he says, you guys have an opportunity to go first. And so here we go. They set up the altar, the prophets of Baal, and they dance around and yell and scream for six hours, nothing, silence. And this thing is turning into a complete frenzy. And then I love this about the Bible. The Bible is filled with real people I wish I could tell you what the original language said that he actually says here. But he says, where are your gods? He starts trash-talking them. I love it as an athlete. He starts trash-talking these guys. One guy, 450 guys. And he goes, your God's probably taking a poop or a pee somewhere because he's not here. That's what that relieving itself is about. Where's your God? He's in the toilet because he's, he's not answering you. Guys, this is in our Bible. <laughs> This is Elijah. Some of you in this room might be named Elijah. <laughs> this is who you're named after. Yeah. <laughs> right? Dude, this is like some ancient trash talk, and I love it. But now the prophets are getting desperate. And so they're no longer just dancing around the altar and screaming and shouting, but they begin to cut themselves. They begin to physically bleed. Please, please, Baal, answer us. And I want you to know, Baals exist 
today. We might not set up temple altars in our house. We might not call them gods, but they exist. We have so many ways of putting them into our lives. And just like these prophets, when they come into your life, they will make you dance for them. They will make you perform for them. They will make you scream for them. And if that doesn't work, they will make you cut yourself for them, metaphorically speaking, until they destroy you from the inside out. And we all know this. I have people in my family that struggle with different types of addictions. These are the bales in their life that are literally cutting them from the inside out. They will make you dance for them. They will make you perform for them. And this is our third point, but they will give you nothing in return. Because false gods not only bring chaos in your life, not only they rob God of what he is really due, but they bring, they make you sacrifice everything and they give you nothing in return. Our biggest bail in our culture, at least in the suburbs, is our careers. We might sacrifice the health of our family or our spouses or our marriages. We will cut ourselves. We will dance around the altar, calling and asking the career God to just give us the fulfillment and the joy that we need. Another big one for suburban families is our kids, their academic and their athletic careers. We will sacrifice Sabbath. We will sacrifice healthy family boundaries. We will sacrifice the spiritual lives of our children for the sake of their academic and athletic achievement. Now, those things aren't bad, but we all know how we cut ourselves for those things. Those things that at the end of the day won't fulfill us. I had a guy once tell me, it's in this book by David's Brooks, I've talked about it before, that we work our whole lives in this country for career virtues, but the only thing that will ever be said on our funeral are the eulogy virtues. They'll say nothing about the job that we had, and they'll say everything about the person that we are, and yet we spend our whole lives cutting ourselves for things that mean nothing. Obviously, we need houses, we need money, and God wants us to work hard. That's not what I'm saying, but you get the picture. People literally sell their stole for this stuff. And it's the ultimate bait and switch because we'll perform for them day after day and we'll cut themselves for them. But just like the prophets of Baal, when they desperately need them to return the favor and to respond to them, Baal, bring down fire, perform for us, silence, nothing, nada. They're not there. Let's keep reading verse 30. Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. They crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. And then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons. And he piled wood on the altar, cut the pieces of altar, and laid the pieces on the wood. And this is where he gets really cocky. He says, fill four large jars with water, pour the water over the offering of the wood. And after they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they had finished, he said, do it a third time. I mean, he might as well be flipping the bird to these guys. And so he did as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. And at the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar 
And he prayed a simple prayer and he just said, oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are the God in Israel, that I am your servant. Prove that I have done this at your command. Oh Lord, answer me. Answer me so that these people will know that you, oh Lord, you're a father. You're a God that have brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, the dust. It even licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell face down on the ground and they cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Pause. These prophets, they're dancing. They're cutting themselves and one simple prayer from Elijah, and boom, fire. And what I want you to see is this just isn't fire. The one true God answers, but this is a consuming fire because the altar, the bull, the sacrifice, everything, the water even in the trench, it's gone. You know what the Bible says? God doesn't send consuming fire. God is consuming fire. And when fire comes down in the Bible, what does that represent? It represents God's judgment. On the great day of the Lord, God will judge the world. And we don't like to talk about this as privileged, comfortable Americans. But he's just, and God will not tolerate sin, which is why our big idea for today is that God still reigns in the presence of a world that worships other things. And see, I know people, including Christians, they say, I can't accept that. I don't like that God. I don't like that God of judgment. And I even used to think this way. Like, that God is an icky God. But since when is God our embarrassing uncle that we have over for Thanksgiving, where we feel like we have to apologize for him? Since when is his book that? Sometimes we're just so narcissistic, and this is Oh, this just hit me this week. That we can't take a just and holy God. It can even be hard to explain a just and holy God to people in our circumstances. But someone who's on the bottom, they want a just God. They crave a just God. Tell that girl that's been trafficked for the fifth time today that there's a just God and her heart will sing. Tell that person that is currently or past been in slavery that there's a just God and their heart will sing. Tell all of those babies that are being slaughtered in our country today that there's a just God and that he sees them and their hearts will sing. We need a just God. We need a God of judgment. And what does God tell us about himself? He is holy and he hates sin, but he loves us. God still reigns in the presence of a world that worships other things. And how do I know that he loves us? How did I know that he reigns? Well, there's a passage in Luke's gospel. And Jesus is with his disciples. They're on their journey to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to do the thing that we all need. And they pass by the Samaritan village. This is in Luke's gospel, chapter 9, I think, verse 54. And he's with James and John, two of the disciples. And when they get to this Samaritan village, Jews and Samaritans didn't really like each other. And so they reject Jesus and they reject the disciples. They say, we don't want you here. We don't want you here. And James and John, because they're human like us, they get a little ticked off. They get triggered. It's like they saw that Facebook post that really pissed them off. 
And what do they say? They say, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and burn them up? (laughs) What? They look at Jesus, they know his power, and they go, let's burn these suckers. Come on, Jesus, bring down fire, kill them. (laughs) And I go, oh, praise God. If they can be disciples, I can be a disciple of Jesus because their anger problems are on level 10. But what does Jesus say? He rebukes them. And I could just see Jesus say, you don't understand what you're asking for. Don't you understand that that fire that you want to call down on the Samaritans has got to come down on me? Do you know that? Do you know that the God of the universe was consumed by fire? That that fire of God's wrath, his judgment on all of the wickedness in the world came down on Jesus? And the fire that should have consumed those Samaritans for rejecting Jesus, the Son of God, the same fire that should have consumed all of the Israelites for worshiping foreign gods, and the same fire that should consume us, doesn't. It consumes Jesus instead. God sets up an altar, he prepares the wood, and then he climbs up himself to show us how much he loves us. And he goes to hell and back to do it. But God is holy. God is just. He will not wink at sin. He takes sin seriously, but he loves us. And so he must bring fire down. And so when you're disillusioned by the craziness of life, when you're watching the news or you're scrolling through Facebook and you're just tempted to be depressed, let me encourage you that God sees it. He knows it. And when you're wondering, is he going to do something about it? Let me tell you, he already did something about it. Because God still reigns in the presence of a world that worship other things. And see, that melts my heart. This makes me look at the bales in my life and goes, there can be no more. There can be no more sharing my heart. You can't do it. And it motivates my heart that God would love me that much, that I can take those bales, I can prepare the altar, and I can say, take it, God, burn it up, pull it out of my life. Because false gods, they might bring chaos into your world. They might rob God of the worship that he deserves. And they might make you sacrifice everything and give you nothing. But when we see that God still reigns in the midst of a world that worships other things, the chaos is replaced by peace. And that will happen when instead of robbing God of the worship that he deserves, we give him our devotion. And our false gods begin to fade away. And we will see that God doesn't require performance. It's Father's Day. I know so many people in this room think that you gotta just perform for God. You gotta dance for God. God just wants me to show him that I'm doing good for him so that he would love me. Some of us got that drilled in by our broken heavenly fathers. We all are broken. But this God says, no, you don't have to perform for me. You don't have to dance for me. You don't have to cut yourself for me. I performed for you. I died for you. I climbed up onto that sacrificial altar for you. And I love this, and we'll close here. I think it's ironic when we see Jesus in the Gospels hanging on the cross that above him read a sign saying, Jesus, King of the Jews. 
And what's so ironic is the, the very people that wrote that sign and placed it above his cross as he was being crucified for the sins of the world were doing it to mock him. They didn't believe that he was the son of God. They didn't worship him. And yet, ironically, they said the truest statement about Jesus that they ever said in their entire life because there hung the king of the universe. The true king that Israel always should have worshiped. The true king that they really needed. The true king that we need. The true king that will be Lord of our life. He hung there for us and then he reigned because he smashed death. He rose again and he lives today. And you know what? If that doesn't get you fired up, I don't know what to say, but here's what I will say. That king, he's coming back, baby. He is coming back. And we got a choice. Are we going to be here? Or are we going to be here? That's it. Because the Bible says when he comes back, it doesn't matter who you are, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Father, you love us so much that you sent your son to the cross to die for us. I pray that in all of our hearts, this would not be a message of condemnation, but this would be a message of, of, of just joy, that you love us that much, God, that you love us that much that you gave your son for us, that he got up on that altar. He sacrificed himself for us. And Lord, I pray that only from that source would it motivate our hearts to be obedient to you, that we would know that the gospel is that you perform for us, not that we have to perform for you. And so everything we do, now we do it as a response to your love. Thank you, God, that even when we look at our imperfect fathers on this earth, we get a tiny glimpse of our perfect heavenly father. And some of us in this room, we had not so great fathers. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us another father, that you have become our father, a perfect father, and we can look to you to take us by the hand and lead us through life. Thank you, Lord. We love you, and it's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Movement Church podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We hope wherever you are, this message encouraged you to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus. For more information about Movement Church, including attending a worship experience, getting connected, or to give online, please visit movementcolumbus.com.